Hooper now offloads. Oh, so close, still short. Glaubanga. There he is! He's over! Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast, where diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. We're real, family-friendly and positive, so get involved. Get involved. Now, you'll notice that that was just Mitch on (laughs) the mic then. Rev, unfortunately, has um, double-booked himself and I can hear your cries of displeasure right now from the past. From the future, from the past? I don't know how it works, but I know you're upset. But in, in, um, in his place, we have someone that is infinitely more knowledgeable and infinitely more attractive, Nelson Dale from the Draft Rugby Podcast. How are you, mate? Mate, what a what a intro there, and definitely not a word of a lie there. But yeah, no, I'm doing well. Glad glad to have you on board. Uh, really, you're just all that we could hope for as a replacement for Rev. He brings the stats, you bring the hot takes. Uh, it's it's a direct like for like swap. So are you and ready Andrew to get brings fired the up looks. on this pod? <laughs> Thanks, mate. If, what are you bringing? Yeah. <laughs> find out we'll find out no mate you bring the uh solidity throughout the whole thing and make sure we bloody get this going every week that's true no one else no one else is as lucky as us here and they don't get to see you mitch brings a beautiful smile mate those teeth (laughs) are pearling white beautiful that they bloody well are definitely not chemically enhanced or anything like that (laughs) doing well um now tonight we are going to be covering a whole bunch of stuff but we may as well let you know where you can find us so get us on instagram at hashtag pig underscore drive underscore rugby facebook at the pick and drive rugby podcast twitter at pick underscore drive rugby make sure you get involved and get in touch with us there mitch what are we going to be talking about tonight awesome so we will go through the last round of the autumn nation series that was played over the weekend and there was some really really juicy matches and a lot to dissect and get into so we'll do that then we'll go through some listener questions that we got so enter the locker room and we'll finish things off with a look to the future so we're going to look through the squads that were announced for our for us yesterday um whatever time you're listening to i don't know when that is but the squads for super rugby pacific next year we won't go into too much detail around this because we do uh intend to do an well a real deep dive into each squad in a preview next year before super rugby Pacific kicks off, but we'll just look at, I guess, all the squads and the biggest ins and outs and how we kind of, what we're sort of taking from the squad announcements. Excellent. So let's jump on into things, starting with the Autumn Nations series. Moving on now to the final round of the Autumn Nation series. There were heaps of games on display, two, four, six games in total. And what I might do is quickly run through the results before we deep dive into a few of them. Now, to try and keep this pod under three hours in length, we are not going to be doing a deep dive into each of the games, unfortunately. Sorry, teams. So starting off with Scotland, they kind of snuck through with a 29-20 to 20 win over Japan. You would have thought with Japan's recent performances that they would have got up by a much more significant amount, but either way. Then we have Italy just kind of sneaking it through, 17-10 against Uruguay. So a supposed Tier 1 nation nearly getting toppled by a Tier 2 right there. So that's pretty... uh... It's pretty damning for Italy over the last little while. Now, England came away nail-biting 27 to 26 winners over South Africa. Absolutely incredible game. Good to watch. In similar circumstances, Wales defeated the Wallabies 29 to 28. So uh, not sure if I told you, boys. I'm I'm Welsh uh, Uh, this week. I was Um, waiting for that. I I think if the fans out there won't have access to our private chat, 
this goes <laughs> goes around. And from what has been said over the weekend, it's very evident that Ando is Welsh in this game and not very, Aussie with some of evident. his interpretations. Very evident. St. David's, most western, most western point of the British Isles, and I, my friend, am from there. That's not true. <laughs> my mum is. But that's okay. The one um, week of anyway. the year that you're happy to be from there. <laughs> Not every year, but yeah. Yeah, hopefully not every year. I'm okay to not be. Um, France versus New Zealand, 40 to 25. One of the games of the last few years. If you have not watched this game, watch this game. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, we'll talk about it in due course. And then Ireland pumped Argentina 53 to 7, an absolute smacking. So there were some other T2 matches over the weekend, but I don't have them in front of me. And what we're going to do now is dive straight into the Wales versus Australia game. Like I mentioned, finished 20 29 to 28 uh, penalty time or extra time conver- uh, penalty conversion 82 minutes in to Reese Priestland mm-hmm. sealed the game after Australia were in the lead um, from a Felipe Dungunu try in a 70th minute and a Beal penalty in the 77th minute. So look, it was hard to take. We were all pretty fired up. Mitch, how were you initially feeling at the end of that game and how are you feeling now let's not get too deep into the woods but let's just go with initial emotional response compared to now i've got to be a little bit uh, a bit fair i think i didn't watch the game live so i watched it late on sunday afternoon having already known the result having known what you know listening to some group chats and things and expecting quite a poor display by the referee from what i had heard so Watching the game, I actually wasn't quite as fired up as I think I would have been had I been watching it live. But uh, yeah, still heart palpitations, just hands sweaty watching it going. Even even though I knew some of those calls were coming, I still just could not understand where they came from. And yeah, so not as bad as it would have been had I been up at 4am to watch it. I'm sure my wife was a lot happier than I watched it later, <laughs> having known what happened. But um, yeah, just disappointed, I think, overall. Nelson, how about you, mate? A pretty similar roller coaster of emotions. I, I didn't know the result before watching it. I watched it first thing in the morning, and I mean, it led up to two minutes out. And I remember looking down at my chest and visibly seeing my heart beating, going, Can you do this? Like, I, I have never seen my heart do that before. And uh, yeah, then just absolute heartbreak. But yeah, I'm sure we'll deep dive into it. Yeah, we really will. And look, one of the things that I think has been fairly unanimous fairly unanimous over the kind of wash up after the game is that um, with the current interpretation of the head high tackles that Rob Valentini's red card was always going to be a red card when it was pulled up. Um, Nelson, how do you feel about that one? Yeah, look, I, I suppose once it's looked at, once they're del- diving into it, it's going to be seen as reckless. You can see if they go through the protocol and have a look, it's, it's always going to be a red in my opinion, it takes two heads to head clash. And I think that's a difference between a shoulder charge or something reckless to someone's head. So I, I don't think there was, you know, intent or anything that should warrant a red card moving forward. It, it is an accident. And I mean, World Rugby has talked about research themselves. If both runners are running upright, including the attacker, the heads are in the same space, this stuff's more likely to happen. So. I mean, both players have a little bit of a role. One player's 12 centimetres taller. I did see him dip. Uh, I mean, it is what it is, but it was always going to end up a red card when it was checked. And that's the thing. As soon as it was called up and the on-screen producers, on-field producers are just replaying it again and again. You that's just it, need, right? 
yeah, yeah. You just knew it was going to be um, a, t a red card. And there's arguments to say that Valentini should be dropping his body height, but then with the emphasis on rush defence and dominating the collision area, it's really hard to get that balance in a split second opportunities that players have. Um, Mitch, how much does this event, this red card, speak to the need to introduce in a worldwide sense the 20-minute red card <clears throat> allowance? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it goes to show this game alone that the spectacle is ruined by having a red card when two teams so evenly matched across the board go head-to-head -head at, at the same level for 80 minutes. It's, a, it's fantastic. It's rugby at its best. You take one play away from that and it really devalues that contest. Uh, we've seen that through Super Rugby this year, through the rugby champs, that when there was a call made, decisive call made early on in games and we had a player come back on, it sort of took the sting out of it a little bit. Um, Talking about the actual red card, I want to be a little bit controversial here and just say, um, I know in, under the current laws, it is correct. There is head contact. Valentini did, does come from distance is what they were talking about. But he does actually, like he's got his, his legs, his knees bent and his, his body is actually at a bent position. The player that comes into contact actually drops quite significantly into the oh, contact yeah. as well. Um, so the, when they're talking about no significant drop, I personally would have preferred to have seen a yellow card from this decision as opposed to a red. The, again, it's, the, we've had this conversation over and over again, but it's outcome-based. Because last weekend, mm -hmm. Taniel Tupo is on the opposite side of a similar contact. As the tackler, he goes in, has a head clash, and he comes off second best, and we're not looking at it. We're not looking at who's at fault, what happens there. If we slowed that contact last weekend down i think there could be cause to say the wallabies were potentially at fault there the referee sort of got in the way the player sort of stepped at the last minute to go around the referee and sort of blindsided tupo who wasn't prepared for contact so um ends up copying it full frontal goes off com contact to the head and he's out cold um the fact is that he's the player that comes off second best so we're not looking at it so had the roles been reversed, I don't think we're looking at a red card or anything either. If if Valentini was the one that knocked himself out and the ball player's fine, it's play on, he goes off, and there's no contact there. Yep. Yeah, and I think that just speaks to some of the ongoing questions around the <clears throat> head-high contact process. But one of the things that this game, that that event did bring forward was a pretty brave performance from the remaining 14 players on the field and the bench, it must be said. And we don't always like to talk about brave performances because often a brave performance <laughs> is a losing performance. Uh, <laughs> but I think in this circumstance, it's, it's warranted considering they played the game, when was the red card? Uh, 14 minutes in. Yep. So they played the game for, approximately 65 minutes a man down they had um, another 10 minutes being two men down with the Beal yellow card and the Wallabies continued to fight they stayed in the contest and at no point did Wales really look like overwhelming them and I think that says a lot to the growth of the team now which players for you Nelson stood up during that 65 minutes who really stood out to you this game as taking on the opportunity to um, do their best for the team look I think it was a really cohesive game despite everything that happened um, that we can't sort of ignore the fitness of all involved, including the type five. You had blokes like Arnold working really hard. Water played the, the 80 minutes when we had, you know, numerous players down. So people in the type five, I think need, you know, the, 
the credit for the work they did right throughout that whole match. But I think someone that really stood out for me was Hunter Paisami. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even the fine margins around that kick, yes, we had advantage. It was the perfect opportunity for him to pull it off. But the execution was just pinpoint. We've seen him do it through Super Rugby. We've seen him have a crack at that international level. And it was absolute perfection. And I think his distribution was was improved. I, I think he played really well. But I, I will add, I think one point that hasn't been talked enough about is James O'Connor varied his line so much better in this one. He looked a lot more comfortable he took the ball to the line. He played flatter, you know, did some wider cutouts as well as wide, that sort of stuff. And I think that really set a good platform for Hunter Paisani. So, I mean, there was lots of names we could pick out, but yeah, Hunter Paisani was massive for me. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that point, particularly around James O'Connor, because last week it very much looked like he was told to play like Quade Cooper or how Quade Cooper has been playing, stand a little bit back, not attack the line as much. Because it... it if you look at how he played for the Reds this year, he was very much an attacking uh, fly half. He was very much on the line, wanting to attack the line, giving his outside players the option to to run off him and to run around him. And that's where Hunter performed so well. So this week, I think they've ch- had a mindset change and they've said, just play the game that you want to play. And that's two ways. It's en- enabled him to play better, but it's also enabled Hunter to play better because it goes back to that foundation that they set at the Reds. What I really liked was Hunter's willingness to be uh, trying his hand a little bit more with his passing. You notice that he seemed to have more confidence and he was ripping the ball across, particularly trying to aim for the outside shoulder, the player that he's passing to, to get that width on the attack that we've sometimes missed. And he just looked like, he looked a lot more confident. And I think that what you're saying there, Mitch, about James O'Connor's changes, (coughs) that that enabled him. Um, Paisami to get into the game a lot more because of that combination that he had with James O'Connor just being inside of him then being used to it. So that's great. And how and, good was that first try? I just wanted to say that, oh, that he set up. Oh. But he he's not looking where he's kicking the ball. If you watch his eyes, he yeah, looks hard yeah. at the sideline to make it look like he's he's in committed to the, the offload. And then he just does this bang off the, the foot. It's brilliant. It, he plays it so well. Even I said in the stands thought he was going for the, the pass. It looks um, similar. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this little kicking game that he's over time bringing in. It reminds me of that, um, <clears throat> the Reds, where he got that little dink out the back, um, up, almost up against the goalpost, yeah. the Pattaya ran around and, yeah, and finished. Yeah, the Brumbies. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, I'm really enjoying that development. And I'd been a bit critical of Paisami after the um, first game of this World Japan and the uh, Scottish game this series. But he's really stepped up in the last two matches and I think it's probably just he's regained that confidence after uh, being stuck behind Karevi for a bit and being out of the team with the birth of his first kid. Mm. So, yeah, long may it continue and hope that his growth over the next Super Rugby Pacific game uh, season really helps him kind of grow in skills and confidence and I hope he's going to be playing 12. But Hamish Stewart might have something to say about that at the Reds. So anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Anyway, going back to going back to this match, one of the things that I think was a little bit unbalanced was um, maybe the back row combination. I'm not sold on Samu being a starting seven, but at the same time, who would you have put in net over him? Nelson, you got any thoughts on the number seven position with Hooper being injured and the makeup of our squad at the time? Look, I mean, with the squad we had, I think that was probably the perfect choice, Pete Samu. He can play right across that back row. 
Um, he is strong over the ball. I think the dynamic is different with him there, but I, I don't mind that dynamic. We didn't really get to see it for a good chunk of time. So I, I think it is hard to assess in this case. But, I mean, he, he's the guy that comes to mind. You give a chance. I, I would love to see Colby Feinger, you know, get a crack, but also I'm not a huge fan of just handing out jerseys, even though I, I do think he's a, a very, very good player. Um, if he's stuck around in Australia, who knows? We might have seen him bench behind Hooper a couple of times. <laughs> because, I mean, this is the first time we haven't had Hooper or Pocock for many years in that Sevens jersey. So Mick Wright's the man of the future, but I think Pete Samu had to fill that role. One of the things that we have done so far is we've spoken almost entirely about the Australian team. And yeah, fair enough. We're not. Oh, podcast. We, haven't, we haven't spoken about one player in particular. You didn't ask me who my favourite player of the game was. Oh, tell me, who is your favourite player? Curtly Beal. <laughs> We've got to talk about Curtly Beal. So for, Maybe for I was fans, just trying for you to not brag about you picking him. For the fans <laughs> who follow our Twitter account, you would have seen that this week, earlier before the official squad was named, we named the team that we would like to see play for the Wallabies for their final game of 2021. Can, can, just can we pause for a second? Can everyone hear the smugness in Mitch's voice right now? <laughs> well, just want to, okay, not, continue, continue. I'm not that smug. If you go and look at the the fans, they picked your team, Ando. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I was that. the That's only really one out of um, Rev, Ando and I that, that chose Kurtley Beal at 15. And I think it paid dividends this week. I thought Kurtley yeah. Beal was fantastic and probably put in the performance of a 15 this year. I don't think the some of the like particularly in the last twenty minutes, he really stood up and he his ability to set off that try um, that Nick White scored that break that he set up and then to kick that penalty from nearly halfway to seal the game or well, to get Australia sort of back in the game. Uh, I don't see any of our other fullback options in Australian rugby being able to do that just yet. Yeah. yeah, look, I, I think that was vintage Beal, right? We had a bit of everything. The card, which, I mean, I think that's his third card. Every single one is from something very similar. Um, his ability to break the line on two occasions and set up others around him, just absolutely brilliant. But we also saw him miss three tackles, you know, run into the defensive line upright, swinging his kind of chest out in front of people. I'm a huge Beal fan, and I think dynamically he is the person to fill that role for us currently. There's still question marks there, but if he had to do something, if, if this was his match that, you know, gave him a chance to play for the Wallabies moving forward, I think he did his role. He did ex mm. exactly what we wanted of him. So if he had another performance like the last couple of weeks, I reckon he was done. But, you know, I think he's done enough. I think he's done enough to stay in a conversation yeah. and that he is definitely an experienced player we can call in if injuries require it and, yeah. and we need it. I think other players... Um, I mean, people will kill me for saying Banks, but people like Banks and Hodge and um, maybe even Pattaya, if he gets a run at 15 for the Reds this season, uh, might be ahead of him come 2023. But uh, that's partly me wanting to reward homegrown players as well, people that have um, made the decision to stay. I think, I think you're strike. right. Uh, look, I, honestly, I think you've got to reward those players, but I also think... We need that consistency, you know. We, we need to build these combinations. And, and these guys are playing together, you know, do know each other well. There's access to, you know, their fitness regimes, things like that. And, I mean, Rennie, yes, he's giving people the chance right now. But I think it's with hope to bring some of them back or or to know, you know, what tools he has in his pocket. I, I don't think it means we see Beal start. He's not going to do that three, four matches in a row like we saw him do it once you know, out of a handful of matches. So he can fill a role for us, but I don't think he's our starting 15. 
Well, why don't we keep going then? And we're, I, I want to just quickly raise one of the uh, Welsh players. So Nick Tompkins, he was the villain of the night for that knock forward, knock down, whatever you want to call it, that resulted in really, I guess you could say it's one of the decisive tries of the match. It really turned the momentum of the game in the 47th minute. Um, and outside of that moment, he was excellent absolutely excellent for the welsh so he had eight carries for 86 meters made which is a pretty good return for a number 13. but the most important stat in my mind is of those eight carries he broke seven tackles within which is an incredible return rate and so he was just really destructive all night and I mean, I need to, I'd need to go back and have a look at it, but naturally you'd be thinking your 13 is lining up against the centre combination opposite you, so you're 12 and 13. Um, and Paisami and Ikatao are no slouches defensively either, so <clears> for him to have that level of impact was really, really impressive for a player that's still relatively new to the Welsh setup as well. So, Mitch, any quick comments on any of the Welsh players that you wanted to bring forward? Uh, I actually don't know the Welsh players well enough to really know names and pick people out uh, i thought dan Easy. beaker did quite well um but it, it's always hard being a wallabies fan when we lose by a point when i feel like we should have won um to yeah. sit here and not say that you know just it, it's hard to do that <laughs> i can feel your pain <laughs> all right cool well why don't we head on in let's get to the juicy stuff okay so we've been holding this back for a little while but we do need to have a little bit of a an adult conversation and not in that way nelson's warming up so keep the shirt on mate that's okay um Put the kids to bed. it's gonna get kids are in bed so we're all ready to go basically let's start with oh what should we start with let's start with the yellow card because that happened earlier in the game. So let's begin with that. We've already spoken about the Valentini red card pretty soon after Beal, uh, whilst wrapping up a tackle on, an, on a Welsh break, gets yellow carded. Now, I'll give you a brief summary of the referee-based conversation. Then, Nelson, I might throw this one to you to start with before Mitch jumps yeah. in as well. Um, <clears throat> but basically, the Welsh are playing the ball at the back. Um, Beal is the last defender on the wing, except there's a significant amount of cover defence which is coming in, plus there's not much... Um, there's about 15, 10, 15 metres to the sideline as well. Bill comes in, tries to make the tackle. In my mind, pretty deliberately goes in pretty arms wide as he's going to the tackle. The ball does get knocked on, but he is still trying to make a tackle. And he is then called as being the last man trying to shut down an attacking opportunity. Um, so it's called as, I think, foul play, and therefore he gets yellow carded, despite the fact that there are clearly cover defenders coming across. Um, Kellaway, I'm pretty sure, is the one that's back in the back play and has covered off that gap clearly. And the assistant referee tries to be like, oh, pretty sure there's covering defenders, but the ref ignores it. And oh, I don't actually, I don't, I don't know that's exactly what they're talking about in that instance. When they have an intercept like this, they go and check whether the try is probably going to be scored or not, and then they start looking at if it's going to be a penalty try or not. So I think in that situation, the the assistant referee was actually trying to say that there wasn't enough defense there and he was pushing for a penalty try. Um, and okay, the ref... That's... Did you see it that way or how did you see it? Yeah, look, I mean, that, that's, that's correct in terms of how you interpret this, right? I mean, if it's in the middle of play, if it's, you know, accidental or whatever, it's it's normally a knock-on. When you're in an attacking phase where there is potential to set up for a try, the, the first thing is, was it intentional? And, you know, could it have been a line break? And in this instance, yes, there could have been a line break. I'd say, no, there can't be a try. So, I mean, that, that does mean, I mean, my opinion, it was intentional. So that does mean a yellow card. 
if it was a try scoring situation, that's a yellow card and a penalty try. Yep. So they've ruled yeah. it not a try scoring situation, but a line break and attacking opportunity. So by the letter of that assessment, yeah, he, des- he deserved a yellow card. It would, to me, it looked pretty clear that, you know, he, he had the effort, the slight amount of effort to touch that ball and only briefly did it. And yes, he did wrap around it. But I mean, very, very cheeky, but he was definitely going for that ball. I think part of the challenge is also that Bowden Barrett did in a previous game against Wales yeah. as well and didn't get carded for a pretty similar action too. Um, Worse, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so it's just part of the question around consistency. Um, I think we can probably shift forward. Can from I just say that. though on this, how do you how do you rate intent? So the referee, if you go through the actual process, the referee says in his interpretation of what's happened, he said the arm is in an unrealistic position to go for that ball. Now, how is it in an unrealistic position? It was unnatural position. Unnatural, sorry. Unnatural, yes. That's the word to use. Not unrealistic. Unnatural. What was unnatural by Kurtley Beal wrapping his arms as he goes in to tackle a player? I thought it was the straight or the the mostly extended arm away from the body was my understanding of that. And so because his arm was out further than it would normally be for a tackle on a player, um, it seemed like he was... And in my mind, I actually don't have a huge argument about this yellow card either. But it was that he he had the extended arm out and it was kind of like he was he knew what he was doing but was still trying to make the tackle as well. I, I thought it showed intent, you know, like it, it definitely showed intent. The one defensive veal is he has a horrible tackling technique. <laughs> and that's what he does with his arm every time he's trying to tackle someone. But to, to me, his body was landing the other way. He looked like he kept his arm that little bit longer and then looked out to the hand. He, he moved that hand without looking to begin with. But to me, it, it looks like intent. I think it's very hard for a ref to rule on intent. And in this instance, they have to be in that player's mind. I think looking at it, it's a fair assessment to say it was intent. I mean, the, problem I've, the problem I have, though, with it is that if you watch it in real time, in real time, it looks like the Curly Bills community to the tackle and the ball pops down. The referee was standing right there and he said, play on. And it was only when the ball stopped that I think one of the touch judges or even the TMO said, we need to look at this. He was willing to play on and call it a knock on. So the one thought about that is he had no control or clue in most of the game. So (laughs) I I, I don't know if we can use his inability to see something directly in front of him because he missed 40 to 50 things within a yard of his face. He did, and I and guess that's, that's, um, that's a different conversation, isn't it, around the Timo interjection. But yeah. when when we're looking at instances like this, where we're then going down to the wire and judging intent of a player, uh-huh. whether they've played at a ball or whether they haven't just, you know, instinctively stuck their hand out to go for a pass, which is na- human nature, like you, it's a reflex, right? We've seen we've seen similar situations like this not be penalised and not be called um given a yellow card because they say it was wasn't instinctive it's just what's happened um yep. if we slow things down so much to look at it and look at intent that's what the the problem's going to be we could find problems and yellow cards or cards in general for most infringements in the game if we slow them down and look at them in minute detail i there think was, there was a really good... really need to look at just the real time replay there was a really yeah. good moment within the England South Africa game because I was watching it earlier today where um, 
there's a restart and the South African player, I can't remember who it was, one of the locks, um, takes the ball and then, you know, the usual like smash of players as they smash and when they collect the ball off the kickoff. Um, one of the British, one of the English players just totally like clocks him a little bit high, but it's in this mess of bodies and stuff like that and doesn't get looked at. And I'm like, if they have a look at that, that's like a red card because um, yeah. it's shoulder to the head. Um, there's little like mitigating factors here. It's at pace from distance, red card, but they don't. And so look, I actually think we need to move on. That's enough on the yellow card. We've got much juicier stuff that we need to talk about. Let's, <laughs> let's get on to the main course here, okay? So for those of you who don't know, Nick, Nick Tompkins, the player that I was giving some credit to before, um, Australia on attacking manoeuvre in 47th minute. He reaches out, knocks the ball down. Very luckily for him, the mm. ball goes backwards from his hands into the ground, bounces up, he picks it up, goes, scores a try, okay? So that's that's the basic run through of it. And we've got a couple of fan quotes that we might go through um, just to kind of start our conversation off because I know that we're going to go through this in a fair bit of detail. So let's start off with Jock Cud. Jock Cudmore on Twitter. It shouldn't matter whether the ball bounces or travels back or forward in the case of the Wales try. Intent is cynical to stop the attack. Favourable bounce shouldn't be considered. How about the rule changes to a genuine attempt means there must be upward motion instead of a downward slap? Unless regathered before hitting the ground, downward should always be cynical. At least in an upward attempt, there's a better chance of a regather. To be clear, this is only if the ball hits the ground. Should it be cynical? If caught, then it's obviously a genuine attempt. Mm. Um, Christy and Willie K also say, also, I've always thought it didn't matter if the ball went back. If it's a deliberate knockdown, it's a cynical play, penalty, and it stops a try, then penalty try in yellow. Um, and there's another one from Steve Lenthal that we might go into in a moment. But that's, that's enough thoughts for now. Um, Nelson, we had a bit of a positive back and forth in our group chat about this, <laughs> where I was kind of saying how... I kind of agreed with the referee in the it, it did go backwards. Shut up. It did go backwards out of the hands. Um, but I'm I was being like, I'm I'm playing to the letter of the law here. You're playing the, to your Welsh heritage, is what you're I'm doing. I'm playing to the letter <laughs> of the law. When the ball touches his hand, it does go backwards from his hands into so, Ando, so Ando. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, hit me. With that interpretation, if a player drops the ball cold, once yep. they've held it, or it's from a pass, they drop the ball cold in front of them but it travels backwards from the hand, but the ball lands in front of them, would you say that's a knock-on? I say it should be a knock-on. It always has been. Yeah, correct. And I'm not denying that. I'm also yeah. not denying that either. All I'm saying is this in this example with the referee that's super lacking in confidence, he doesn't have the confidence to go into a interpretation or feel for the game and what the right decision should be. He's going to the letter of the law. Actually, <laughs> I, I have a I have something to say here. Um, oh. I think the issue that came about from all of this is that in on the field of play, he initially called knockback play on, and that's where it happened. So he yeah. the the incident happens, the ball bounces, the Wallabies all stop, Wales all stop. Tompkins picks the ball up and says to the re- looks at the referee, and the referee goes backwards, and he then says again backwards, and so he runs off and places the ball down. So then he awards the try and he goes to the Timo and says, can we just check that the ball traveled backwards? And that's all he's looking at. So the I, won't, f- I won't grant him that, uh, you know, he doesn't have the confidence to go to the field of the game. I mean, every single time you've seen this, that would have been a penalty. So he, he's gone out and done the different thing to what everyone else has done. He's interpreted this rule differently so we've ever seen it interpreted. So he he has gone out on a limb to do something different. So, I mean, if he doesn't have the confidence, you'd think he would go, well, it's always a penalty. I'm going to penalise that. Instead, yeah. Yeah. he's decided to go against the grain 
which, you know, he, he did on a number of occasions, in my opinion, in the match. And I, look, I mean, I, I don't think some of our players' responses to him, different things like that, helped our 50-50 calls go our way. But it really felt like, you know, he was going against the grain in this one. I mean, and that's the biggest thing out of this, you know. Yes, if you read the law, the law says the ball has to travel forward. It doesn't say it has to move forward from the hand. The ball has to move forward. I mean, it's forward from his body. How do you how do you interpret this? Because it's definitely forward from his body. You know, if it was a pass, if it was a you know anything else, would just drop ball. It would always be labelled forward. Previously, the interpretation of this law is that has always been labelled forward. So the interpretation has changed in this instance. And if this is going to be the interpretation moving forward, we need to hear it from World Rugby, or we need to hear it from you know somewhere in the the rest. Because I mean, if I was playing rugby and there was intercept on. I'm going to do that and swing my fingers backwards and try to knock the ball back consistently. Yeah. yeah. I think you can do that. That is, that is right for, you know, some players who are willing to take the risk to, to stop tries. You know, if, if the ball bounces back a tiny bit, fine. If not, it's going to be a penalty try and a yellow card. So I, I think the biggest thing in this is intent. There's always been intent. You've tried to stop the play or stop the attack illegally generally is the, the consensus it's not whether it goes a centimeter forward a centimeter back the whole big basis of this is intent and i think that you can see that really clearly with how nick, nick Tompkins reacts when a try is actually awarded so the camera goes back to him as soon as the referee and what is it mike adamson um yeah mike adamson awards it <laughs> tompkins just got his hands on his knees just shaking his head going mm. what has just happened so even he was incredulous he didn't believe that he'd been given that try and so look um and honestly biggest... within this um i'll just finish this point yeah. is like i will happily concede to you your guys's experience within playing rugby for far more than my one match of experience when i was about 14 <laughs> will say i i'm genuinely just looking at it from that one element of the language of the law um and there's some other people as well that have viewed it that way but at the same time you're right interpretation over the course of however however many years would say and common sense would say that that is a knock-on um mitch what were you going to jump in with the inconsistency arises as well in the fact that the way that he he ha handled the situation with Bill in the first half, not once did he ever go, oh, well, actually, let's just check if the ball did travel forward. Like, let's look at intent here. Like, he never did that. And he's doing a completely different approach to this situation. In real time, it looks like a cynical act. He's clearly stopped the play. He's knocked the ball down. There was an overlap. I'm not. There's no way we could have scored. We were in our own 22 or something. But the fact is that it's obvious that there has been foul play occurred, and he's called play on from that situation, and then awarded the try. He was very clear in his mind that he was carding Curtly Bill earlier on. He just needed to get confirmation from his touch judges whether he was giving a penalty try as well as the yellow card. So he's come at the two situations from two completely different backgrounds which is really confusing uh, considering he's meant to be an impartial referee. Now, Nelson, why don't I give you a chance to do your kind of Jerry Springer's final thoughts on this uh, situation before we move on? Oh, mate. Um, uh, look, I, I've, I've voiced my opinion on this a lot right the way through, but I, I think the biggest thing from this was uh, I think numerous calls up until this point had gone against us and there was definitely a feel that 
you know, maybe Australia wasn't getting the rub of the green. And, and that's where I'm agreeing with Mitch here. Look, I, the, the first one clearly went forward for me. You didn't need to check that. But yeah. there was definitely a difference in opinion of instant interpretation of this. He, he called the penalty straight away against us, then looked to see how bad it was for him. Instead of calling it straight away, which would be the normal response when something looks very cynical, he let it go. And then imagine he got tackled and then there was another phase or two. They would never have gone back and checked. And even if it did go forward, you know, by a marginal centimetre, a centimetre further forward than it did, he would have never been checked. So for me, I, I think the on-field thing here should have been, it was pulled up straight away because it looked extremely cynical. And if it's about if it goes a centimetre forward or backwards, then you can measure those fine margins on the video rather than go, well, that seems fine by me, even though it's trying to destroy a part of the game that we love, you know, clearly trying to, to ruin an attacking phase. So for me, it was, it was something I was fuming about and I will continue to fume about until we get answers from World Rugby. So you'll be waiting for about three months? No, no, look, I, I'm sure Rennie will get fined far quicker than Rassi. So, um, <laughs> This, this one will move quicker, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, now, what we might do is finish this off um, and then shift across to Dave Rennie by looking at this um, bit of fan input here from Steve Lenthal. So thanks for getting in touch, Steve. I think the knockback call was ultimately correct, but when first viewed bleary-eyed at 5.30am, it looks suspicious. It's probably the only one in 1,000 time against knockback and his play on. I think the wording that officials use of not in a realistic position to catch the ball is the issue on those sorts of incidents. It wasn't what cost us in the end. Think of Rodder's obstruction call off the restart after Callaway's try, or if Paisami finds McDermott unmarked on his right during his break. He runs it in under the sticks, makes the conversion easier instead of from the sideline after Dungunu's try. I think Rennie was just filthy at Marius Yonker after being told the Scotland yellow card was wrong. I haven't forgiven Yonker for a blatant knock-on call by the Bulls against the Brumbies from 2012. It's on a stand-back catalogue at 57, 20 minutes. Not that I'm bitter or anything. So <laughs> I, I just love that ending, mate. I love that you haven't let go. May that burn ever brightly in your heart. So why don't we now shift to Dave Rennie? So Dave Rennie, for one of the first times in, according to him, his 20 years of coaching, has come out and spoken incredibly strongly against the refereeing performance. Now, as we've obviously spoken about a decent amount tonight, there was a lot to be talking about. And was he, I guess the question is, he, he's getting compared immediately to Razzy Erasmus because of the um, because of the immediacy of the World Rugby sanctions for Razzy and then these comments that Dave Rennie has made. Now, in my mind, they are fundamentally different, okay? Because Dave Rennie's was calm. It was considered. It was also quite measured as well. He, he never directly abused. He just, and, and accused them of... Um, uh, bias or anything yeah. like that. He just claimed that it was poor, that there were poor refereeing performances and that there needs to be some level of accountability. So he was particularly filthy at Marius Jonker as well um, for the mistakes with the Alan Elwatoa yellow card in a previous game. And yet Jonker gets called up again. So look, within this, he does criticize the referees, but I don't think it's as bad as everybody is saying because when you watch it, he's actually quite reserved and he's quite calm and measured in what he says. Um, Nelson, what do you think of my read on Dave Rennie's take there? Do you think that it's comparable to Razzie Erasmus's? Is everybody drawing the correct assumption there? 
Uh, look, I don't think anyone other than the South Africans are drawing that consumption, uh, that that connection there. You know, uh, I think it's a lot more similar to what we've seen from Eddie Jones in recent weeks, where he's called certain things out, um, but he's also done it in a you know a manner where he's having a bit of a laugh and all this sort of stuff. It's after a match, you're allowed to have emotion. You know, these guys are humans. I, I remember Checker breaking a door <laughs> in the the ref, ref box, the coach box. I actually personally loved it. I wish, you know, you don't want to say that all the time, but it, it shows the players that he cares about them and he cares about the result. And for me, you know, a lot of the players probably want to blow up, things like that. And and no, I don't think you should. And it definitely shouldn't become a trend for any. I, I don't want to see him ever do this again, honestly. But I, I think the emotions after a match are very different to a considered thought about planned hour video where a threat had come before it to say he was going to release it. And then he claimed that it wasn't released. They're, they're not even remotely similar, but after what's happened recently, recently with Rassi, I don't want to see this creep into our game too much. And I'm sure we're probably going to see that reflected in maybe a fine or something minor. It does not deserve a ban. You know, a ban would be overkill here, here but I think a, a warning and a, and a fine would definitely be okay. Mitch, jumping on from that, um, one of the things that... Oh my god! I just had a mental mic. I had a really good idea, then, guys. Well, I, I was a just really gonna, good question. I was going to answer the the first question. I just wanted to say that for for me personally, it's chalk and cheese between what yeah. Rennie has done and what Rassi Erasmus has done. Rennie, as we said, his delivery was calm, and that's great. And I don't want to say that you can just deliver bad news and as bad as you want and just be calm about it, and that's okay. <laughs> but what he does, he doesn't actually ever say that the referee made the wrong calls. He never said that the referee was bad. He he made he he thought he said in the immediate post match interview um, on the sideline that he thought the refereeing performance or the team officials was horrendous is the words he used, um, and then when he went into the post match press conference he clarified some of that and what he was talking about was the fact that there was an accountability that Marius Jonka had made such a mistake against the Scotland in the Scotland game and they had received an apology during the week. And yet there's no accountability there. He's gone on to refer to TMO them again this week and he's made similar calls that went against the grain and ended up costing the Wallabies the game again. So he's sort of taking a shot at the system. He's never actually taking a pot shot at the referee directly. Um, he obviously doesn't agree with the decisions. But Rassi Erasmus is going to the point of saying that the referee was uh, that Nick Berry was racist against Sia Khaleesi, was viewing yeah. Alan Wynne-Jones more so as a captain than Khaleesi. He's making massive claims against his integrity as a person, where Dave hasn't yeah. done that at all. He's Brad talking Rassi, all about the system. Yeah, I think you're 100% on point there. Rassi's was a character assassination to a point where that, that ref has said he feels unsafe and he's getting threats against his family, his kids and everything like that. That's not going to happen after what Rennie did. When he was saying he was upset about the outcome of some of these decisions and that there was no accountability for someone who had made mistakes two weeks prior and they, they're still, you know, team-owing the same team. Oh, it is not even remotely similar. Character assassination compared to being disappointed in a few calls. And can I just say, was it not Marius Jonker that refereed that first Lions test, the team owed that first Lions test as well? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so trend. in this situation, Rennie's actually going after Yonker. He's not actually saying the referee was wrong. 
he was upset with the calls that when they sent them up to the TMO, they still reached the wrong decision. And that's what he said. He said, your job as a TMO is to make the right decision. You're there to provide clarity. How can we send decisions up to the TMO and come back with the wrong decision? And that's what that's what the frustration is there, is that when World Rugby then comes or the refereeing association comes to Australia midweek and says, sorry, we actually made the wrong call. That shouldn't have been a yellow card against Alalatoa. That shouldn't have been a try to to Wales. You know, those situations, the whatever. It's no good. We've lost the test match from that. I think that's the the interesting thing out of that as well. You know, when we saw that Alalatoa card, we, we <laughs> lost a, a try out of it and it was, you know, a, a minor brush. And there was, you know, question marks about a head high in the, the tackle before that. Um, which wasn't looked at by Yonka. And then in this instance, he then took the narrative going, I think there was a head high in the tackle. So he then changed the shift back to Australia when a far more cynical, you know, or far more aggressive head contact had occurred. He then did something he didn't do two weeks ago when in this instance was unnecessary. And it happened to go, you know, both calls were against Australia. Very, very strange for mine. And both calls were against Al Altoa. Yeah. Mm. I'm seeing something a conspiracy here. We've uncovered it. But uh, <laughs> Alan Alatoa is the kind of whipping boy of world rugby refereeing. Is that, is that what just we've uncovered here? Just, just Yonka. Yonka. Okay, just Yonka. Just right, Yonka. Cool. Not world rugby. Just Yonka hates him. Just Yonka. Good <laughs> to know. Um, all right, cool. One of the quick things I, did, I do just want to touch on very briefly before we move on, and I might just make this little soapbox and then move on with no right of replies. So thank you, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> is just. No, you're wrong. Uh, thank you. You've got in there early. That's good. Um, I just want to state that we have spent a bit of time talking about some of the refereeing decisions. Mm -hmm. And I personally was tossing up or thinking about bringing it up before the game as to whether or not we should be discussing these. But I feel like people who refuse to discuss refereeing decisions after a game are kind of being overly idealistic and putting their head in the sands um, and not recognizing the reality of a situation that in rugby union referees can have such an influential um, influences a massive influence on the game that their decisions do need to be discussed and the actions that they make on the field can directly impact upon the opportunities that a player gets within the game and within a team and even within a national setup so for people who think that um we shouldn't at all discuss refereeing decisions i just think that that like i said is overly idealistic and is in my mind, just not an accurate reflection of the way the game is actually played. Because you take uh, the refereeing conversation out of this and you have an absolutely really nail-biting and riveting game between two quality teams. But the problem is that's obscured by the actions of the referee in the middle. And you just wish, you just wish that we could be focusing more upon the game that was actually being played. Now, with that little moment done, what I think is the best game to shift forward to now is France versus New Zealand. And this was the game of the weekend, in my opinion, the game of the Autumn Nations series. Is that uh, just because New Zealand lost? Um, it definitely helps that New Zealand lost. <laughs> Def uh, the game beforehand that was a game of the series was Ireland versus New Zealand. So I'm seeing a bit of a trend here. Does anyone know but when New Zealand lost two test matches back to back? It was the 2020, wasn't it? Australia yeah. and Argentina. I don't know if they were back-to-back, -back, were they? Oh, maybe it was two within the one series. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been a long time since they've had back-to-back. -back. 
All so right, the wheels we'll have, have fallen off that completely. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many games have they lost this season? Three? Oh, three, three. 12, three. 15, something like that? <laughs> if you read the New Zealand media, it definitely feels like 100. But it's definitely time to get Razor Robinson in as coach for mine. Now, is that <laughs> you were saying tongue in cheek before about how many games they lost? Do you actually think that Robinson should be taking over from Foster, considering they've only lost three games, two of them at the end of a hell of a long season, and they have had one of the most disruptive rugby seasons in international history? Yes. Ooh, why? I mean, I, I think Razor should have been in there to begin with. I, I think what they've done is just continue with the same old story, moving the next person into the role. And and I don't think we've seen an evolution in any way, shape or form. I think we've seen a deterioration, not only in results, because that will happen when things change, but in terms of culture, in terms of a number of other things that I, I just don't, I just don't see a lot of the positives that we've seen about New Zealand for a long period of time. And, and I think it's not just on um, Foster, but I, I think a change is needed. I think it is a significant change. Um, I'm sure that, you know, they, they probably get most wins no matter who the coach is next, next year. But I do think it's time to chop up what's been done for a very long period of time for New Zealand. Teams have figured out, you know, the rush defence works against them, numerous other things that have worked against them. And that's why these, these losses are creeping in for them. Um, they seem to, you know, hand out jerseys a lot more than they have previously. So for me, I, I think a, a serious change is needed if they're going to be world number one in, in two years. If not, I feel we're going to see them slip up in a match. They're going to lose the next World Cup. And then that's maybe it's time for Razor. Maybe they've missed the chance with Razor and so he's gone somewhere else. But He'll be in I just don't see Hopefully. <laughs> just get assistant, assistant coach us. I'm personally hoping that Foster stays in charge and things continue to incrementally decrease mm. over time and we have a chance to win in Bledisloe. I'd be keen for that. So yeah, my, why don't we actually... My predicted next two years is they stick with Foster. Uh, New Australia wins the Bledisloe next year and then we go on to win the World Cup and <laughs> New Zealand doesn't even get out of the pool stages. <laughs> oh, that would be even sweeter than England getting knocked out in their own home World Cup pool stage. Oh, for sure. That'd be, that'd be even better. Uh, but why don't we actually talk about the game now? So uh, France got up 40 to 25 over New Zealand. It was 24 to 6 at half time. They went into the sheds down by 18, which was their biggest ever losing margin um, for some stupid, like, ever, ever, some significant length of time um, that they had been they've been playing for so look looking at this game and watching it back on replay it was incredible to see the the accuracy the physicality but even more importantly like we, we talk so often about this french flair and it's one of those kind of uh hard to grasp concepts like team culture that you alluded to before nelson that everyone kind of knows what good team culture looks like but no one can really define how it's how it's created and it's also like flair Nobody can exactly say how you create flair, but you know it when you see it, you know? And so just these opportunities that the French team had on counter-attack play, or oh, that Romain Intermac, um, that race back to get the ball out of his own dead ball oh. zone, and then yeah. race it around inside blind pass to the winger, uh, for fullback coming out on the outside. Like those little moments just get you up out of your seat cheering. And there were so many of them within this game. Um, Nelson, I know that you haven't uh, had the time to catch this in full depth, but hearing the end result, were you immediately just cheering for the downfall of New Zealand or were you excited for the rise of this exciting French team? 
Look, I'm not. I know it's it's probably hard to believe, but I'm not cheering on the downfall of New Zealand. I think I love the storyline of New Zealand being, you know, such a solid side, and, and I think they're, you know, the most dominant team in world sport. But I think the rise of France is what I'm excited to see, and. I mean, it's been talked about for the last few years. They've let a few chances go in the last two Six Nations. But I think one of the things that excites me most is see the name Wokey, see the name Jaminay, yeah. and players that, you know, people weren't talking about six months, 12 months ago until they came to Australia. And then, you know, the C, French C team that played Australia, well, guess what? 11 or 12 of them just beat New Zealand. Literally, it was 11 or 12 of those blokes. And two of them were two of the, their big stars. So I think this proves exactly what we thought. No, we didn't burst a, a full-strength team. But France are a serious contender for this Rugby World Cup. You could take two, three of their top players out, and they have guys just lining up. They have so much depth. But, I mean, the likes of DuPont and Ntomac, I mean, these two guys didn't come to Australia. I wish they did because I wanted to watch them. But those two are just absolute freaks. But they're filled and surrounded by really, really good players. Mitch, were you as excited as I am about this game? Yeah, it's always exciting to see New Zealand get beaten. Uh, <laughs> not not because I'm horrible Aussie rugby fan who just wants to see New Zealand do badly, but it just means that a team has actually figured out a way to beat New Zealand and they obviously have had to play very well to do it. We've seen both France and Ireland have put together nearly a flawless performance in the last two weeks to beat New Zealand and they've done so very well. It means that there's good games of rugby to watch as a rugby fan, or just a general rugby fan, when teams can match and beat New Zealand. But I, the, my highlight for this whole game was just seeing that they New Zealand got an intercept try against them after the, the heartache of being a Wallabies fan and having, what was it, four intercept tries in the Bledisloe this year. Mm. Uh, the fact that they that France scored one against New Zealand was just so sweet. I love that. Part of the thing that really amazed me about this game was the pace at which it was played. It was like nothing I've seen in a very, very long time. You look at some of the um, ruck statistics from this match and both teams were, for their 0-3 to three second um, ruck recycle percentage, were at 65.3 for France and 68.9. But the thing that I find amazing is if you expand it out to be the ruck length going from no zero seconds to six seconds, France had 93.3% of their rucks less than six sentence, less than six seconds. That is absolutely insane. And to me, that just shows not only the intent to play at pace, because I mean, you can intend to do whatever you want within a game of rugby, but the <laughs> ability and the accuracy of particularly their forward pack to deliver that ball time and time again for DuPont to be able to um, get out of there. It was just incredible. And I think um, it's Cameron Wilkie, uh, I believe, yeah. the, the lock. He is just going from strength to strength. <clears throat> he was absolutely incredible. And for him to really have that, I'm not sure if it was necessarily an emergence, at least in Australian players' eyes, a bit of an emergence in that mid-year tour. But he was brilliant for them then, and he was brilliant for them on the weekend too. So that was one of the key things. Now, Nels, you're about to jump in there, mate. What were you going to jump in with? Oh, look, for me, we, we've just talked about, I mean, New Zealand, maybe the downfall of New Zealand, but it's, <laughs> it, really, it really is teams figuring out how to play them. And, and it just so happens to be that, you know, it's working in tight and having a you know a, a quick line speed, having some strong forwards, which is what has happened in their three losses this year. 
not necessarily how Australia is renowned and how we would normally play. It's definitely what you think of South Africa. It's definitely what you think of England. Um, France just, you know, could be absolutely anything on the day. But there's this narrative that I've been seeing on Twitter going, well, look how good the Northern Hemisphere rugby is. This is the downfall of the South. You know, I saw one post saying, you know, Southern Hemisphere, this is actually an article written about it. Southern Hemisphere teams play to entertain where the Northern Hemisphere teams play the rugby that's going to win them Rugby World Cups. Yet they've won one compared to our nine. Do you boys think this is another instance, like it has been again the last few World Cups, that two years out, the Northern Hemisphere teams are peaking? Or are we seeing a change of tide or are we seeing, you know, just a leveling of the playing field in these top six, top eight teams? Can I answer this one first? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah cool. Uh, for me, I don't think we can take this la- or this particular, this spring tour on face value and say that there's a clear divide between the, the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere in terms of rugby because I think the only thing it has highlighted, highlighted <laughs> is that there's a different interpretation to refereeing in the Northern Hemisphere than there is in the Southern Hemisphere. If we had Southern Hemisphere referees refereeing these games, I think we'd see different results. And so that in of itself is probably the issue, that we don't have a clear, concise interpretation of the law book across the world at the moment. Uh, we, we saw different things happening in the rugby champs this year than we have seen in this, uh, in this last Autumn Nation series. So I think that goes to show that World Rugby has a lot of work to do in the next two years before the World Cup to actually get everyone on the same page to make sure that we're all interpreting things the same way. Um, because we don't want to get to a World Cup like we saw in 2019, get to a World Cup and in the first week or two of the tournament, they're just handing out cards like like candy because they're trying to make a precedence and they're trying to change situations. Like you can't do that in a World Cup. You're going to ruin the spectacle. What they need to do is work on that now and get everyone on the same page. Make sure that the referees that are refereeing, uh, the Six Nations are going to come down and referee the rugby champs the exact same way. Um, because at the moment that's where the divide is. And do you do you agree with that? Do you think there's a leveling of the playing field, or, or what do you think? I think that there's definitely been a leveling of the playing field. Um, just in so far as the professional rugby teams, there's any team can beat another team on its own day, um, at least within a tier one setup. Uh, well, at least the, uh, take Italy out of that, and yeah, within a tier one setup. And I think that that is just a result of the kind of ongoing effects of professionalism within rugby. I mean, we were dominant in kind of the early years of professionalism because we had the AIS as the key kind of sporting setup within Australia that really centralised our rugby systems and provided that guidance and experience as we made the games transition. But now it's been consistent over time. And so you have the benefit of just longevity, bigger club competitions, providing better quality players over time in England and France particularly. But going back to the particular situation right here, right now, I mean, the Southern Hemisphere teams have been in quarantine-based travel now for months on end at the end of an incredibly long rugby season for the national teams. And I don't think that if France was to travel to New Zealand, the outcome would be the same. I don't think if Wales came to Australia, the outcome is going to be the same at the end of their season. So I think that these results need to be taken with a grain of salt. Like, yes, congratulations to the Northern Hemisphere teams. They played well. Genuinely, they played well. But they're playing well against teams that, whilst 
trying their best and doing their best. And like, uh, this isn't a reason for the loss, but I don't think they're at their peak performance because of the time of the year and the season that it's in for them. So that's kind of my takeaways from it. Yeah, I think that's fair. Look, I, I'm just excited to see, you know, we're two years out from a Rugby World Cup and you could put eight teams down on the paper as, you know, being in that grand final and on their day having a crack. And I mean, we're going to see a resurgence of New Zealand. I, I think we're seeing the rise of two or three teams that look like they could be real contenders. Plus, we've got, you know, South Africa, Australia, other teams that, you know, will always be there having a crack. So I'm really excited moving forward. Yep, definitely. Good call. Uh, why don't we shift now into uh, England versus South Africa because we've been nuttering on about these games for so long that we've got so much to go through still. Uh, England versus South Africa again came down to the wire. 27 to 26, England got up over South Africa with a 79th minute penalty to uh, Marcus Smith being the mm. difference or the separation between the two teams. Uh, so I just want to say how good is Marcus Smith? He's a breath, breath of fresh air within his team. He plays with an energy and enthusiasm and just a level of confidence that's incredible from such a young player. And I rate Owen Farrell. I really do. But he's also just that little bit unlikable in my mind because he's so professional. He's so good quality. Marcus Smith just like brings his schoolboy level enthusiasm and he somehow always gets these freeze frame photos where he's just looking up into the eyes of a nearby English lock and it's kind of like, I love you, Daddy. <laughs> Way it's 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 really sweet. So I know that's incredibly patronising. Is this your a, tall a, a man syndrome man. coming out? No, <laughs> I'm, I just want people to love me because I too am <laughs> tall. Um, but look, looking at the game itself, it was two absolutely phys- two teams. Do- uh, in let me say that sentence again. It was two teams hell-bent on physically imposing themselves and dominating each other. And some of the hits that we saw were absolutely incredible. Um, One of the things that I think has come out of this is that England definitely worked out a way to get around the South African rush defence. Some of the opportunities they took with actually having, you know how you'd often have the forward pod with the number 10 sitting behind it. Um, So what they they did was they brought, um, oh crap, who was 12? It was Tulangi was 12 and Slade at 13. They brought 13 into being, um, Slade into being the first receiver within that forward pack, but then having Marcus Smith at the back. But instead of playing it deep to Marcus Smith, um, Slade would rifle the pass across the front of the rush defence to get it on the outside. And so then that would get them around that umbrella rush D from South Africa and then get them into the space on the outside of the field, which I thought was just a nice little variation and um, what a little understanding of the South African method of play and how to be getting around that. Uh, Mitch, you've had some time to view this game. How, what were some of your initial responses when you saw the result and how did you think both teams played? Yeah, similar to you, I was impressed with the physicality of this game and I think any World Cup final rematch a year later or two years later, however long it's been since with COVID, is always going to be fiery. And the fact that this one was closer than the World Cup final, 27-26, England getting away with it at the end there, it's a great spectacle. And uh, like we were saying before, had this game been played in Cape Town or somewhere in South Africa, I think the results probably would have swung the other way, but... The, the fact is, South Africa scored one try in this game and kicked all of their points through penalties, whereas England, who is sort of renowned for doing that, um, scored three tries and only kicked kicked their two conversions, but only took, took two penalties at shot of goal. So um, definitely changed things up, had a different game plan that I'm 
I'm not sure if South Africa were really expecting, but they just hung in there and just really um, wound South Africa down at the end there. The um, opening try to Manutulangi reminded me a lot of the um, 2019 World Cup semi-final between England and New Zealand. You remember how England basically just controlled, did a really deep kick into the New Zealand half, um, got the ball back after it went out for a line out and then just had pressure upon pressure upon pressure with their phase play until they broke the line. This was almost exactly the same thing in that they just kept pounding and applying pressure until they got the overlap and Tulangi was able to go through out wide. It was incredible play from England. And the thing that really impressed me more is we know how good they are within those really structured moments where they can kind of plan every step of what they're going to be doing. Eddie Jones is a mastermind at that, at that kind of really, really detailed instructional play for his players. But I just love that they were able to back that out, back that up with um, the try to Stewart and then later to Quirk as well. It wasn't just this kind of mechanical or robotic-like display from England. There was some really impressive attacking intent from their backs. And look, they're, they're coming good. They're, they're coming quite good. I, I wouldn't want to be counting them out moving forward as much as I want to because it's England. England. Um, yeah, yeah, they're Are coming you worried, good. Andy? Yeah, genuinely. Do you know genuinely the, I am. You know the Wallabies next test match is against England? Test series, isn't it? They're coming yeah, so, yeah, they're coming down in July. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a hard one. I mean, I'm gonna love it because I mean the the traveling fans are fantastic and they're a high quality team and Eddie Jones always gives some uh juicy things to talk about in the media. <laughs> so all we need to do is um get our media passes sorted before that one, boys, and make sure we can yep. get out to the games, hey? Hell yeah. And sounds good to me. Look, I, I think this year they've managed to do something that two years ago they couldn't, and that was get the trifecta between New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia. So, you know, five of their last six matches against us, they've won. And and to me, that's, you know, uh, Eddie striving to show the boys that they can do this and they can beat us because that's tends to be what lets them down, you know, throughout Rugby World Cups. But they got fifth, I think it was, in, in the Six Nations. They, they really have been stepping up against the Southern Hemisphere teams. And I think it's all just part of building that confidence for them coming into a World Cup. All right, are you guys okay if we move on? And we'll just briefly talk about the Barbars team that's just been announced whilst we've I'll been quickly, doing the um, I'll run through this one, Ando. So as we've been recording, the Barbarians team that's playing next weekend has been announced. It's got a very interesting some interesting combinations here and a very Australian flavor to it. But I'll run through the, the names in the positions that have been announced. So they've named a 24-man squad. Uh, so number one, Tom Robinson from Australia. Number two, Malcolm Marks from South Africa. Uh, number three, Shinzuki Kakinaga. Am I, I don't even know. Shinzuki Kakinaga. Yep, definitely got that one wrong. Say uh, confidence. It's okay. <laughs> number four, Jack Doon from Leinster. Number five, Rodrigo Fernandez Criado from Argentina. Number six, Pete Samu. Number seven, Rob Liotta. Now, I don't know if these are their actual playing positions because we're seeing Rob Liotta named at seven, but who knows what will happen. Uh, number eight, Ollie Robinson from the Cardiff Blues. Number nine, Tate McDermott from Australia. Number 10, Ryoto Nakamura from Japan. Number 11, Tom Wright. Number 12, Len Ikatao. Number 13, Isaiah Parisi. Number 14, Filippo Dalgunu. Number 15, James O'Connor. Number 16, Stephen Kitchoff from South Africa. Number 17, Kosuke Hirokoshi from Japan. Number 18, Naihari Kotaki from Japan. Number 19, Angus Bell from the Waratahs. Number 20, Duan Van Mulen from South Africa. 
Number 21, Nick White. Number 22, Ryan Wilson from Scotland. Number 23, Rob Carney from Ireland, formerly Western Force. And 24, Marcos Moneta from Argentina. So I'll throw this one to you first, um, Ando. Who, who of this, who's the biggest standout for you? Who's the biggest surprise in this inclusion? For me, the most enjoyable part of you reading that list was claiming that the New South Wales Waratahs are a country. Um, yeah, Angus Bell from the New South Wales Waratahs. So thank you for highlighting the importance of the Waratahs. I never said I was stage. calling out the countries they were coming from. You, yeah, but you did. You did, except for that one. So yeah, that was enjoyable. Um, so uh, I did know. I did say. I did say someone for some Leicester, Leinster. Jack Doom. Uh, you said Rob, Rob Carney, just because you wanted to throw in that he played in Australia every year. So. Yeah, how yeah, good. I, as I so, said before, Australian flavour. Rob Carney is really, um, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that he's in there. I didn't know that he was kind of still playing. I thought he'd retired. <laughs> I think he has. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. Hopefully he's still up for it. Um, I love the fact that Tom Robertson is going to pack down next to Malcolm Marks. I think that's going to be an incredible experience for him and just a really good opportunity to learn. And so there'll be a little bit of training as well. It won't all be beers. Um, so to have Angus Bell in the mix too, with kind of Kitschoff and Marks that he can be learning from, like th th those are great learning experiences for kind of the young players. Although obviously Robinson isn't as young. Um, I, I love watching Nakamura as well play. So there's, there's a few players I'm really, really keen to see get a run. Yeah, look, I'm really interested in a few things here. I suppose it's exactly what we expected from Rennie when we know he was named as, as coach. He's clearly trying a few things out to see how they go potentially for, for Wallabies playing different roles. James O'Connor at 15. He's chucking Isaiah Parisi in at 13, even giving Iketau that crack at 12. Can that work? And, and you know, quite potentially, I think that could be a, a good combination going that way. They both can fill those roles. So I'm really excited. I know people in other parts of the world might be a little bit disappointed there's not a few more non-Aussies, but honestly, I don't care. Let's, let's, let's take this when we've got the ability to, you know, take these chances and, and make these combos. Plus, how good is it seeing Malcolm Marks in the team with, you know, a bunch of these Aussies? So uh, I'm really excited to watch this one. wonder if this can somehow, like, count as eligibility for Australia now that he's been coached by the Australian coach so we can just pick him for <laughs> Wallabies next year. Malcolm Marks, yeah. Yes. I think that'd be a big Loophole. thing for the Wallabies. We've just Loophole. picked up a, a hookup from somewhere else. Maybe we'll pick up Molnar. We should have thrown him in here. Maybe a fullback from somewhere, you know, as well could be good. Right. Well, considering uh, how long we've just spoken about those games and the fact that we do have two other things we wanted to quickly cover, let's finish. Let's move on to the locker room. Let's go. All right. We're going to dive into the locker room now and answer your questions. We'll do this quite quickly because we have run a little bit over time already. So the first question comes to us from Daniel Ryan, and he says... Players not being available during test windows, poor refereeing and officiating in general, and a seemingly directionless Wallabies made for some dire viewing as an Aussie fan. Overall, it was good to see that the chasm between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere have closed, and we are now seeing competitive games. After seeing a large component of the France C team put the All Blacks to the sword, we can be happy with the solid series win we had over them earlier this year. Very, very good comments. I think we're all sort of on the same kind of agreement with that. Um, Michael Gardiner says, before the English tests next year, I would like to see us try squeezing a game or two in against uh, in against teams like Tonga, Samoa, or Fiji. I am not nearly as desperate as I thought I might be after the losses that Wales game uh, after the losses that Wales game and France tests showed me. We have the ability to play and don't need to hang out waiting for Karevi and Cooper. We need an Australia A team. I would be a 
wouldn't be opposed to buying a $50 away supporter pack to help fund this as I think it's essential to our success going forward. I'm excited for next year and actually looking forward to the Bledisloe games. Ando, quickly around that Australia A team, what are your thoughts? Yeah, get it going. And I think it's most realistic for what Rugby Australia can afford. It seems like they can't afford, uh, we were talking about it off camera before, they can't really afford a full NRC style competition at this point in time, unless Stan is a broadcaster want to step up and fund it and recognise the long-term investment in Australian rugby, that that would actually be and improve their overall main product. But I think the cheaper alternative is to um, organise Australia A tours and to have that going as well and maybe playing against some of the Pacific Island teams, maybe playing against the um, New Zealand Maori teams. Mm. Basically just get experience into the younger players and make sure that they have an opportunity to be in a a further high-performance environment beyond their super teams too. Nelson, what are your thoughts around this $50 away supporter pack? Do you think that might be a feasible way to fund something like an Australia A-team? I think if you gauge the interest around social media, everyone seems pretty keen for it to happen. I don't think, you know, if it if it's a big stretch of a, of a money, I don't think people would do it. But if you're talking something like $50 or, you know, you, you can buy a jersey and a few different things and it covers their costs plus gives you a little bit of money, I think people would get behind it because we know how positive it could be. So it's not a bad idea. It's got to be a part of the funding, I suppose, if money's got to come from somewhere. I'll throw some money in. I like the idea of the Australia A-team. I think it's definitely the future. And and just to look back to, was it 2019, right before the World Cup, we had a possibles versus probables game at Leichhardt Oval in Sydney. And from all reports, that was a sold-out fixture. So we had two Aussie teams going at it um, in Australia kits. And, yeah, there's obviously... There is interest in it. So I can see it definitely being something that will get off the ground. Uh, next question comes to us from Sheepy uh, or Bastard Sheep on Twitter. And he says, another perfect example of why you always play the whistle. It's just a shame that these examples always hurt so much. That said, earlier in the match, the whistle went <laughs> went when a potential try was on the cards. A potential seven points reduced to three by a premature whistle. We finish the year in about the right spot on the world rugby ladder. It was great to be third for a while, but I think that's where we honestly are. All said and done, it's time to sit back and relax after another rugby season is closed and get ready for the next super rugby season with my rose-coloured glasses on, which, funnily enough, are the same colour as a Waratah flower in blue. <laughs> Love it, Chiefy. Thank you for your support. You've been great this season. Um, Ando, just quickly around that, the the comment around the early whistle, what, what were your thoughts around that? Oh, look, I was focusing more on the fact that that kind of poetic conversation right at the end there, Waratah flower in bloom, can't wait to share oh, a beer with, yeah, can't wait to share a beer with Sheepy at one of the Waratahs matches this season. Um, but in terms of the playing, was it playing a whistle, your question? Oh, no, the, so uh, the, there was the a situation whistle. in the game where yeah. we have uh, we have advantage and we get an overlap and I think Lenny Gattel runs off to into the clear to put the ball down, the ref pulls it yeah. back for a penalty. Yeah, look, to be honest, such as another example that the referee was just in over his head and mm. made a bunch of bad calls. Um, those things happen now and then um, within games. So if that was just like a one-off and didn't have the rest of the weight of the game behind it, I'd be like, oh yeah, whatever. Um, these things happen. But considering the inept performance that was shown throughout the rest of the match, it's just yet another nail in the coffin. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Christy and Willie Kay have written in and said, it's not all doom and gloom. Depleted by injuries and withdrawals, lost two close ones and one that was live for 70 minutes. Even if we never look like winning, well-earned rest, then bring on Super Rugby. I agree. Um, And then environmentally unfriendly, 
says, when you only see four to five players from the most successful Australian provincial side in 2021, the Queensland Reds, if anyone was wondering, have no eye on the future development of players, bringing Curtly Bill back, and lack discipline during the game. How did they not see this happening? Um, Nelson, any any comment on that? On oh, that I think he's, he's 50% correct in, in a few things that he said, a few percent wrong. Look, I, I think we needed some experience. We needed to take a few chances. This is the year that we could do it with players overseas, which might entice some of them to come back. I mean, who were we going to take from Australia that was necessarily going to make the difference and be the long-term fly hard, full fullback for Australia? You know, if you ask Reds, it's Harry Wilson for any position. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was right about the Reds. You know, I, I would have it baffled me how few Reds we saw, um, but I I still believe Rennie's making the choices that he thinks are. On a case-to-case basis, not on which team won the most. He left a few players home because he thought it was going to be better for their development, and and I think that's fair. Yep, brilliant. Ando, any other final comments? Uh, not really. I just also defend the decision to bring Kurtley Beale into the squad. Injury forced the hand for that one, and they were already over in Europe. So what else are you going to do? Parachute a player that hasn't really been a part of the national setup much in the past into the team or pick a player that's already over in Europe that has 70 plus caps of experience for the Wallabies. To me, I don't have an issue with Beal being in the squad, in this squad for that point in time because of those reasons. I think the hate that he's got is unfounded or unwarranted, I should say. And with such a, a dismal season by the Waratahs this year, we really did need to look to our Waratahs based overseas at Latu, Skelton and Bill to kind of even the ledger a little bit and and push the, the Waratah agenda in the Wallabies. So happy Which to is see all only, It's only the right thing to be doing as yeah. well. Which I think really leads us well into our final section, which is going to be talking very briefly about Super Rugby Pacific, so the squad announcements. Uh, personally, I'll be focusing a little bit more on the Australian teams because I know a bit more about them at this point in time. So if you've had your head in the sand or haven't had a chance to look, then jump online and all the teams, uh, both across the Dutch and here in Australia as well, did all their team announcements on the same day. How's that for coordination? And in my mind... It is the first good thing that's happened so far with this competition and long may this coordination continue. Genuinely, I mean that. So if they can keep their uh, organisation moving here, maybe have all the teams announced on Thursday night at the same time, that would just be fantastic. Right before Pick and Drive Live, we would love it. That would be really, really helpful. So, yeah, please, please get it up at about 7 p.m. Uh, rugby, the the forces that be. Or 5pm so we can get our graphics prepared. But yes. Yeah, yeah sure, that's 5pm. <laughs> so looking now into the actual squads, um, there are a few things that really stand out to me. Firstly, welcome <laughs> Fiji and Drua back in, well, into Super Rugby Pacific. And I just want to say you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine back rowers. And I love it. I love that you have nine back rowers and only one fly half. So that Who needs backs, really- right? Yeah, who needs backs when you have back rowers that can literally play anywhere on the field? So long may that continue, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the Fijian Drua carve it up, probably against the Waratahs, let's be honest. (laughs) So turning now to the Waratahs, the biggest uh, worry as a Waratahs fan is the lack of lock depth depth that we have. So Jed Holloway and Ned Hannigan are listed as locks despite being back rowers for big portions of their career. Um, the only out and out uh, lock that we have is Max Douglas that's played, he played pretty well last season. And then Hugh Bockenham has graduated from the academy. Supposedly he's got some big raps on him as an up and coming lock. But Nelson, do you know much about him? 
Honestly, I don't know a lot about him. Uh, the, the thing that's confused me a little bit is Jeremy Williams uh, is being named in a few of the you know team lists on on you know social media and things as well. So I still think he's there. He's a promising young lock to come through. I don't know whether they switched those two and should have put one in the development squad and one in the starting squad, but he is there as well. So we've got you know one. Well, we've got three young locks, and then we've got two or three back rowers. But I really think we're going to see a lot of Hannigan and Holloway in that role this year. Hannigan comes in halfway through the season, I believe, as yeah. well. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot placed upon um, Holloway's shoulders, and he's he's normally a six or an eight. So if... he's a big, he's a relatively big boy. He's not a big boy for for lock at Super Rugby level. You're never going to see him international as an international lock, but He's played a lot there, you know, at that should shield different levels. Um, yeah, I think he played a bit of there for the Rams. So I think it can simplify a little bit of a role for him. I actually love seeing him at the back of a scrum, picking that ball up and, and running. But I think he's come back really aching to play for the, the Waratahs and seeming like he's, he's leading the boys around the training. So I think he might be a perfect role for us and something we need with a little bit more experience there too. And I need to pull you in line a tiny bit. You're having a crack at the Fijian and draw for naming nine back rowers. We've got eight with potentially two in Holloway and, and Hannigan named as locks. So we have essentially 10 back rowers um, for three <laughs> positions. It's going to be yeah. exciting. Yeah, and you know what? Looking at all those players, except for Langy Gleeson, who I have no idea who that is, um, for the Waratahs, there's actually some pretty decent players in there. So I wonder if you will see maybe Hugh Sinclair go in at lock again because he played there a couple of times last season, yeah. although he's really not tall, so I hope he doesn't. Um, and well, he's, maybe... he is tall. Like he's... I, I don't not for a lock. Was... Not for a lock, though. Um, you want you want some talk to him, but anyway, let's let's keep going. But I just want to while of... we're on the Waratahs, we just need to highlight that Carlo Tuzano has returned to New well has stayed in New South Wales. So yeah. we had massive question marks that. whether he was going to go uh, in the off season. Hadn't actually heard anything officially, but he's been named in the Waratahs, so he's potentially facing a season of maybe three or four games off the bench um, with Hooper as captain and potential captain and, and the incumbent Wallabies number seven. Well, look, we don't know how um, DC Coleman will actually manage this squad. You know, maybe he does give him time off the bench with an eye to the future. Um, you know, Hoops has big years every single year. World Cup's a couple of years away. I, I don't think he needs to play 80 minutes every week unless we're really title contenders. And I, I don't know if we are. So I think I think he will get game time throughout the year. He's definitely not going to get as much as, as if he went to the force, though. So something's keeping him at the Waratahs, and for me, that's an exciting thing to hear. Mm. Yeah, completely agree with that one. So what I might do is just jump across into a couple of other teams that have some areas of strength. So let's go across to the force, and their locking combination looks pretty exciting. So you've got Ryan McCauley, Fergus Lee Warner, Jackson Pugh, Isaac Rodder, Sidalecki, Tamani, and Jeremy Thrush. Now, I know that um, Tamani and Thrush are kind of getting into their older elder statesman years, but the experience that they're providing for players like um, McCauley and Lee Warner that are coming through, having Isaac Rodder there, the Wallabies player who's just been absolutely incredible in this tour, uh, is just awesome for them. So they are going to be a force to be reckoned with. Oh, sorry, didn't genuinely didn't mean that pun. You're welcome. Um, and then the Brumbies, look at their hooking depth. Falau Fainga, uh, Lockie Lonergan, Connell McInerney and Billy Pollard, who's pretty highly rated as well. So they've got three... Wallabies locks, uh, Wallabies hookers 
within their within their squad. That is incredible. Like I mean, and and one who's a player who's widely considered a future Wallabies hooker as well. They're just absurd. And it's really un- it's, in in my opinion, it's it's on un- it's not good planning. Only no. two of those players can play each week, and unless you're going to swap them at half time, one of them's going to get a lot more game time than the other. But you look okay. at a team like the Waratahs. We've got Dave Parecki and Tom Horton. We've got two. We get one injury, then we haven't got a hooker. So I would love to see a player like Lockie Lonigan playing for the Waratahs purely for the amount of game time that he would get. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing with the Brumbies is they've been stacked for a few years now. I mean, they've just got rid of a bunch of players, Cusack, Miller, Stowers, out of their back row, yet they still have a number of back rowers there. They've lost Kunzul, Pasatoa, you know, yet they've still got fly halves and centres, um, Qatar and Hanson. Yet, yet they've got two fullbacks. Why is Mog gone there if he's a p- potential chance to be a Wallabies 15 when he could be playing every single week? For the Waratahs. So I, for me, this is a reason why we need a centralised system and it's not going to change overnight. But, mm. you know, some of these players, I think, will trickle out of this squad like that we've seen this year with all those players I just named. But it just doesn't make sense to be too stacked like this at the moment. Shifting now to the Rebels. Um, they've got some pretty exciting players spread across their team. Uh, they've... Look, oh, oh, somebody disagrees with me. Um, I'm really keen to see what Reese Hodge and Andrew Kellaway do. So seeing who gets a 15 jersey there, I'm hoping that it's Hodge and that Kellaway can just be absolutely nailing that 14 position. Um, so that will be pretty exciting to see their back three take shape. Um, I'm really wanting a big season from Carter Gordon at 10. I like the fact that um, Matty Tumu has been listed as a centre here, not a fly half. So having him at 12 on the outside of Carter Gordon will be good. I hope that we don't see as poor a season from um, as we did kind of last year. But also their halfbacks, they've got Powell, Sarovi and Tuttle. Three really, really good halfbacks right there. So Powell, I think, has been one of the unluckiest players in Australian rugby to not get more game time than the Wallabies. Uh, seems to have been passed over quite extensively. And then we've got the Reds. The Reds are just a quality team through and through. Really like seeing um, Tom Liner there within the fly half position. We're going so, through their uh, whole... I think Tom Line is the only player they've brought in this year. Like this, this um, they brought in George Blake, one yeah. of the props, the young young prop coming through. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, apart from like in uh, elevating development players into the full starting team, they haven't brought in any other massive signings. You oh, look no, through this no team; signings. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really sure. very similar to the team that won Super Rugby AU last year. Yeah, the only other kind of name that jumps out to me is um, Asiata, who I think filled a little bit of a role last year, but I'm pretty sure one of the hookers, I'm pretty sure it was him, was playing Major League Rugby or something like that, um, but he's not a bad little player. But I'm excited to see Alex Murphy own that two jersey, and he's a player for me that's got potential to be that hooker for the Wallabies, but I don't know if that run's been left a little bit too late so far, you know, with, with two years left for the World Cup, but he's an exciting hooker, so I want to see more of him. Now, you were shaking your head pretty clearly when I was talking about the Rebels. Uh, Why don't we jump back to that? Give us your hot take on the Rebels, and we might start to wrap things up. Look, I think they've lost far more than they've gained this year, and they had a pretty horrible year last year. Um, And if if we're counting them being better because we're going to see some young gun, Carter Gordon, come in and take the lead and shine for them this year, I think we're going to be severely disappointed. Um, that back line, despite having, you know, some good hooker, uh, halfback depth, having, you know, two names that you were mildly excited about with some experience in their back line, 
They've got Jarrell Skelton. I've been so excited for this bloke, but we've seen nothing from him. You know, who's the other centre going to be? It's going to be Stacey Ely, who, you know, is, was all right last year, but really nothing too exciting. You know, we're going to have one of the wings is going to be Lockie Anderson or Joe Pincus, Tom Pincus's brother. Hopefully he's the better Pincus. There's just holes around that back line for me. There's definitely holes in that forward pack, but they can scrape together a starting forward pack. I think that's that's exciting. But then, you know, when they start to bring on the bench, it's going to quickly deteriorate. And if they've got one or two injuries in their squad, they're going to fall apart massively. Well, why don't we take that as... The finishing point then for the pod. Um, we've got Nelson's maybe maybe a realistic prediction versus my more hopeful uh, outlook for the outlook for the Rebels. But either way, we're going to go into these teams in a lot more depth early next year. We're saving it for the new year, so it'll be a bit of a welcome into 2020. Have a bunch of cool interviews with players and people that are involved. So there's there's a lot of good stuff coming. Um, can I just say, Nelson, thank you so much for being here, mate. Been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find you if they want to send you um, pictures of themselves? <laughs> Uh, if, if they need to find me to send pictures, that would be at Harrison Dale on any of the socials. But if you want to see some rugby content, that would be pretty much at Draft Rugby on everything you can find. How, how absolutely good. Um, Nelson, been an absolute pleasure. And Mitch, it's been good, mate. It's been good. You, you're Mr. Reliable. Rev's let us down yet again, <laughs> but you and I were always here. So That's thank it. you so much. Week in, week out. Week in, week out. All right, team, have an awesome week and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.